Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic for this segment is the healing power of grief, and our second guest is Claire Perkins. Claire Perkins' journey through the loss of her son Cameron in 2004 has shown her that the greatest losses can also become the greatest gifts. Claire chronicles her journey of healing and hope in her book, The Deep Water Leaf Society, Harnessing the Transformative Power of Grief. Welcome to the show, Claire, and welcome back, Gloria. Thanks, Heidi. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, Claire, I, uh, Heidi and I were just talking about it with you. You were our poetry co- contest winner. I think they were a, a tie or something, as I remember, but I, we loved your poem, didn't we, Heidi? Absolutely. It was called Flight, and it was beautiful. Yep. Yeah. It was really great. Well, uh, Claire, I've got your book here, and quite a journey you were on with Cameron, not only the journey of his loss, but the journey of his life. Yes. Could you talk a little bit with our audience about that? Um, my son Cameron led a very uh, dramatic and troubled life, <laughs> to say the least. Um, he was born with ADHD and all the inherent problems that come along with that, mm-hmm. and in his young adulthood um, struggled quite a bit with alcohol and drugs and eventually became addicted to crystal meth, oh, wow. which is um, what led to his death. He died by an overdose at age 26 on May 3, 2004. And um, so the story in the book begins with a little bit about his life and what his life was like, and then it continues with my journey of healing after he died. Now, you were a bit on the journey before he died. I was. I was trying to learn how to deal with all the inherent issues of having an addicted child, Mm -hmm. Um, trying to learn to not be codependent, trying to separate myself from him in a way I was trying to learn how to say goodbye for months and months before he passed. I didn't expect to have to say the final goodbye. I was trying to just disentangle myself from all the drama of addiction. Yeah, you know, I think this is. I think there's so many of our audience out here who are going to identify with what you're saying. It's not for a family with addiction. With uh, our son Scott, he was killed in an automobile accident, and uh, we didn't. It's quite a journey all the way through. As I look at your book, it's, it's not. There's a lot of suffering prior to the loss, and you know, a lot of loss prior to the loss of the of the child. Well, and in a way, you have that um, anticipatory grief before the loss because you can see this path of self-destruction. And I know for years and years I kept expecting to get exactly that kind of phone call. Um, For a time he was homeless and we didn't even know where he was and I would expect to find something in the newspaper about, you know, some unidentified person passing on the streets um, because I could see that the drugs were going, you know, the path he was on was going in that direction. So I think a lot of parents experience that and and the struggle between doing what you can do and actually doing too much and enabling the problem. And you talk a little bit about anger and guilt and talk about that a little bit for those folks out there who are in this early position. When a child dies, you expect to feel the deep sadness and the pain of that loss. But I think what people maybe aren't expecting or 
don't know the depths they're going to feel with a loss like this is the the guilt and the anger. Um, all the second guessing of, you know, if I'd only done this, if I'd have made him go into rehab, if I had forced him to uh, be clean, if I had bailed him out of jail, he actually died while he was in jail. Um, you know, all these questions of what could I have done as a parent because we expect to um, protect our children. And I suppose that it's true for, for the loss of any child that you're going to feel some guilt that maybe you didn't do something right. Um, and now he, got, he got himself an inhalant in jail, right? Right. That, that's what I was going to ask you, um, how, he, how he died of a drug overdose in jail. He, he got his hands on an asthma inhaler. He does oh. not, did not have asthma. He was inhaling the, the um, albuterol all day long. Mm. My assumption is to try and get high. And um, he just he overdosed on albuterol. I don't know how he got his hands on it. It's a prescribed substance. It should have only been available through the um, the pharmacy, you know, under control of the doctors in there. But mm-hmm. things happen in jail. I, I understand from friends of his and other people that you can get your hands on things in jail almost easier than you can on the streets. So. Wow. Um, so and but that was where a lot of the anger came in for me. It was the irony of of the whole issue of treating substance abuse as a crime rather than an illness mm-hmm. and to lock up someone who's an addict. Um, to, in my mind, when he went into jail, I almost had hope that, okay, this, this 30 days he needs to serve in jail maybe is just what he needs because he won't have drugs. He'll, he'll have three meals a day. They may not be good, but he'll be fed. He'll have a roof over his head. He'll be safe. I had all these misconceptions about <laughs> jail might be his saving grace. Mm-hmm. And so I had real anger about the idea of of locking up an addict and then allowing him to overdose in jail. I just mm-hmm. felt the unfairness of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and the idea that you've kind of been duped in a way to think that he was safe there. Right. Yeah. Right. We expect so much of our, you know, all of our protective systems, the police and the and the jails and our government, and I think sometimes um, our vision of what those systems are like is not really accurate, um, mm-hmm. and people who have been on the inside know that it's quite a different idea than the ideal. Talk a little bit about self-forgiveness, because I know that you talk about that in the book, that uh, self-forgiveness, both the forgiver and the one being forgiven, you are both. Right, right. I struggled. I thought that I had forgiven myself, Um and I was trying to do some regression work and hypnosis with a therapist, and one of the things that came out in one of those sessions was um, she suggested that maybe a lot of the struggles I was having in my life, in my external life, had to do with that I hadn't forgiven myself. And I argued that, yes, I had, because I thought I had. And I had this sort of revelation one day um, that forgiveness has two parts. It has the forgiver who's extending the forgiveness, and then it has the person who did the wrong accepting that forgiveness. And so in self-forgiveness, you're, you're playing both of those roles. And so it occurred to me that maybe I'd only done half the job. I had sort of extended forgiveness to myself, but I had not really accepted it. Accepted it. There was still a part of me feeling like I didn't deserve that forgiveness. Like I won't be forgiven. Right. And, and it does remind me of that quote that I see in here that Craig Scott gave, and he was someone that was involved in Columbine when he said, Forgiveness is like setting a prisoner free and then finding out that prisoner is you. Exactly. 
Yeah. Uh, also, talk a little bit about how emotional states can be carried by the body, and they can actually become physical. I think that's very true. I think that our body physicalizes everything that goes through our mind and our heart. And when you when you have emotions that you don't find a way to deal with, that you don't find a way to express, um, a lot of people will shove down their grief and, and repress their tears and not express what they're feeling. And they think they're doing well because it's not showing on the outside. But what happens is that becomes um, systemic in the body and it leads to physical illness of of all kinds. Um, uh, people may be aware, for instance, when you feel a, a high level of stress, you may get a neck ache or a back ache. And that's just a really common example of how what our emotional state is feeling is actually exhibiting in the body. So it's very important, and I, I, I have in the book lots and lots of examples of how I learned to express my emotions in a safe way through expressive arts and journaling so that I could... It's almost like you can get, get what you're feeling out in words and in pictures and hold it at arm's length, and you're sort of externalizing it rather than internalizing mm-hmm. it. And you did a lot with dream work, too. And you I, still do, I assume. Yes, yes. I've been a, a dreamer my whole life, and I found um, that after my son passed, there were many dreams, um, I would say kind of in two two kinds of dreams that were very healing for me. Um, the first kind were actual visitations where my son came to me in dreams. And there's just, there's just a, a qualitative difference about those dreams that when you wake from them, you know this was not just a dream, but actually a, a soul-to-soul connection, and I believe that with all my heart. Um, oftentimes those dreams did not have a lot of communication. It was just his presence, but they were always very healing. Um, and they also showed me places where I still had work to do. And the other kind of dream were dreams where he was not present, but the dream was speaking to something I was struggling with on my healing path and showing me um, how to make the right choice. Um, there was one where I had dreamed my, my old boss was Tom Ridge, the head of Homeland Security. <laughs> and it was at a time when I was trying to decide, should I... You know, should I sue the jail system? Should I sue the county or not? And um, the idea of the homeland security in my dream was these kinds of things that we do, kind of like, you know, shutting the barn door after the um, cow has already escaped mm-hmm. and that I wouldn't really accomplish anything by um, by suing the system because I couldn't couldn't bring my son back and I wasn't interested in a financial gain. Um the only thing it might have accomplished is to prevent more deaths of this kind, but um, I seriously doubt that it would because of the way that our jail system is in this county. Mm-hmm. And talk about, um, so I could do dream work if I've just had a loss. How about, if I don't, some people say, well, I don't dream. Well, you're talking about you can journal. Exactly. Talk about journaling. Journaling is just so powerful. You can say anything in your journal. <laughs> you know, a lot of times we struggle with those people who are closest to us don't know how to deal with our grief. They don't like to see us cry. They tend to want to make it all better when it's not better yet. You can rant and rave and cry and be angry and 
be hard on yourself and anything else you want in your journal, and your journal is never going to judge that or try to change it. So it's an excellent place to um, express all those things you're feeling, and I think you have to express them, even if they don't make logical sense. If you're feeling it, it needs to be expressed. Otherwise, it will become physical, and then you're going to have bigger problems down the road. And talk about the expressive arts. The expressive arts, um, I was really, really blessed to be halfway through a training program when my son died. Um, Lucia Capacchioni, Ph.D., is the author of um, 13 books on art therapy and journaling. And I was training directly with her in a one-year program. And so expressive arts is a form of art therapy that does not require a therapist. You're, you're your own therapist. And so... It's just a huge body of work, um, and the art can take any kind of form. And the thing is, people people will say, well, I can't draw or I'm not an artist, but it's not about creating something beautiful to hang in a museum. It's about expressing what's going on inside. And you can do this with, with stick figures, with scribbling, with uh, collage from magazine images and phrases, with painting, with clay sculpting, even with body movement and dance. There are so many forms. And and if you get Claire's book, The uh, Deep Water Leaf Society, Harnessing the Transformative Power of Grief, you will see a lot of her pictures. There are going to be a lot of examples of what she's talking about for you. So you can take a look at those, and, and she's really giving you some great ideas about moving along. But my question is, and I'm sitting there thinking, why should I do this? You know, it sounds like a lot of work. You know, And I love what you said that... Um, a death can be a doorway into awakening. Can you talk about that a little bit, why we want to transform ourselves? Absolutely. Um, a death is going to change you, whether you like it or not. Um, your life is going to be changed by the loss of someone close to you. But you can empower yourself to choose the direction of that change. And so rather than being steamrolled by the loss, you can take it as an opportunity to... Um, Re-examine and reinvent who you are. A lot of what we feel in loss is is not just the loss of the person, but also a loss of a piece of our identity. In my case, it was an immense piece of my identity. 95% of me was wrapped up in being Cameron's mom. So you're left with, who am I now? And so it's an opportunity, rather than to be left with a big hole, to be able to strip away all those parts of you that are no longer serving you and recreate or remember the truth of yourself and sort of recreate yourself um, to the next best level of who you can be. So, so in people, other words, um, Claire, although it's the end of one chapter of your life, it's, it's actually the beginning of another chapter. Exactly, exactly. So many people, like the women who founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving, they took their loss and they turned it into a powerful expression in the world that helped other people. And I think um, every one of us has that kind of opportunity, maybe not in that large and um, visible of a way, but we can all take the grief we're feeling and turn it into something that helps the world in some way and recreate who we are and become a better person. It also allowed me to really um, divorce myself from my own drama addiction. Um, Substance abuse and addiction is such a dramatic um, lifestyle. And 
I would get sucked into so many dramas all the time and it was using up all my energy. And I found since his passing that dramatic situations just don't suck me in anymore. I can I can keep my distance from them while still being available and helpful to whatever's going on. Well, Claire, um, before we get into talking about uh, people who are addicted to their drama and what I do about that, I wanted to uh, tell people how to get in touch with you. Uh, they get, get in touch with you. You want to tell them your website? Yes, it's deepwaterleafsociety.com, and my email is claire at deepwaterleafsociety.com, and it's C-L-A-I-R-E. That's great. And Claire also writes for us, so if you go to the Open Top website, you can hit on Contributing Authors and find um, her articles there. Uh, Claire, say, can you flash back to right after Cameron died? When you've been addicted to that kind of drama, what do you do? I think <laughs> it's very difficult, and I think um, that's why his death was, in some sense, a gift. I'm not sure I could have disentangled myself from it as easily if he were still here and we were still living that same pattern. Um, But as with everything, it's a choice. First of all, it's the recognition that you're in an unhealthy pattern and then a choice to to change it. Um, After Cameron passed, I remember asking Dr. Capicchioni, what do I do with this huge void that's been left in me because I know that a void is always going to be filled with something new. What do I do to prevent that void from being filled with just more drama of different kinds? And she had some very good advice and that was to take all the energy I had been um, channeling outward to try and fix and heal Cameron and to turn it inward to heal my own inner child. I think we all have... um, maybe not all, but I think many, many people have had experiences in their childhood that left them a little bit hurt or scarred in some way. And oftentimes the drama that comes into our lives um, sort of mimics or patterns after that that hurt that we had within ourselves. And so I spent a lot of time, again, with the expressive arts and the journaling and some other practices working to heal my own inner child. And how you do that is to reparent um, reparent the inner child in the ways that maybe you weren't parented as, a, as an actual young child. And so taking care of yourself, it's a time for you after you've had this kind of a loss. Well, Claire, tell us about some of the things that you're doing and, and uh, can people take workshops from you or how, how does that go? Yeah, I do actually do um, one-on-one coaching and I offer workshops on occasion. Um, I have a program called Creative Grieving that's an eight-week process. I can work with individuals, and I occasionally schedule it as a workshop for a group. Um, those kinds of public events can be found on the website. Um, and if you did an event, you're in Arizona, right? I'm in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And would you work with somebody over the Internet or telephone? I can work with people over the Internet and telephone. It's it's not as effective as face-to-face simply because of all the hands-on artwork. Mm-hmm. Um I'm looking at ways to try and use the Internet better with maybe webinars where you have a visual interface as well as the verbal communication. Um, because, But I, I still can work with people by phone and just explain how to do the process, and then we can exchange by email the actual artwork that comes out and 
and work from that. But it's just easier face-to-face. Now, I'm going to take a couple of things from your book, and we only have a couple of minutes. So um, one of them I want to say is you talk about two kind of grievers, those that are determined to heal and those that cling to uh, the grief of the past, and it becomes a physical response for them. Right, and I think that is another form of addiction. There are so many ways we can be addicted, and I think um, sometimes we we hold so close to the pain and we feel as though if we choose to let go of the pain, somehow we're we're dishonoring the one we've lost. And right, I now I'd say if you are really newly bereaved, I mean we have people who are listening today who are maybe only days out of grief, you know, this might be a show you tuck away. Absolutely, because in the beginning, there's no way to not feel that, and and you should feel that. Yeah, and I love uh, another thing you say in your book. You said uh, that anyone can undertake the journey back to truth of the inner self, and then you say grief arrived in your life to speed the process along. Yeah, it was the opening of the door. Um, I think a lot of times trauma of any kind, whether it's grief or um, even something like 9-11, it triggers in us all those questions about who we are and who we can be, and it gives us an opportunity within the pain to reevaluate who we choose to be. And to find the gift in the grief. Exactly. Is what you said. Exactly. Yeah, well, uh, thank you so much for being on the show, and and it's very interesting, everything you've uh, said, Claire, and I'm sure it's going to be of great help to our audience out there. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Claire. Thank you. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.